Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning, Wildwood. Hey, it's great to see you all today and uh, excited that we're going to have a chance to look into God's Word together today. Before we do that, I want to just make one quick announcement, and that is uh, regarding next Sunday. Next Sunday is what we call an all-in Sunday here at Wildwood. We do this a couple of times a year. And on that day, we will have no other support programming around our building. In other words, we won't have children's ministry running next Sunday or student ministry or college ministry or adult small groups. But we're all going to be gathering in this room together at 930 or 11 o'clock as we have a chance to worship together as a church family. And so would love to have you come next week with your family um, and join us as we we worship. We're going to be talking about freedom and dependence on uh, July 4th weekend. So excited for us to have a chance to do that together next Sunday. We'll be taking a break from our series um, as we gather together as an entire church family to look at God's Word and and to worship Him. Um, So with that said, we are today going to continue the series that we've been in, a series called Family Tree, series that is focusing us on the security of our salvation based not just on our hope, but on the reality of our God and how He is good for all of the promises that He makes. When God says something will be so, we can count on it. So when God says in Romans chapter 8 that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, we can be confident that that is so. When God says there is now no condemnation, For those who are in Christ Jesus, we can be confident that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ um, because God has said it is so. Now, the way that we come to realize that God is a God who can be trusted is found in history. God has actually demonstrated his trustworthiness in history so that you and I today might understand and know that we can trust God with our forever. And we see this by looking at God's family tree. When we look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is giving a defense for the faithfulness of God by looking at how God has dealt with one part of his family tree, the Jews. God had given many promises to the nation of Israel. Has he made good on those promises? And does that give us an indication of his ability to make good on the promises he's made to us, a different branch on the same tree. And so we're going to be talking about that, continue to talk about that today as we are in part five of our series, Family Tree, looking today at Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. But before we look at Romans 11 together, I want to just uh, ask you a question, and that, that question is this, what is most precious to you? What is most precious to you. I want you to to think for a moment about what that is, and then when you fix on something that is very precious to you, I want to ask you now, how do you care for that which is most precious to you? For, For some, as I ask that question, you answer it with your family, and if you're parents, you answer that with your kids. Your kids are what are most precious to you, and and if that is what is most precious to you, then how do you care for them? Well, one of the ways you care for your children is you make sure that they're always in good care. 
If you're a parent and you're going out on the town uh, for the evening, you want to make sure that there is a trustworthy person watching your kids. You don't just open the door and just yell, and whoever runs in that door, you give them your kids for the night. You don't do that, right? Because you want to know something about the one who you are trusting, this person that is so, or these people who are so precious to you. For others of you, you you answer that not with your kids, but you answer that with your money. Now, you wouldn't answer that very loudly because it, it doesn't feel spiritual in church, but if you're honest as you sit there, your money is something that is very precious to you. And it may be precious to you because you have worked your whole life to to save money towards retirement, and now you're in retirement, and no more paychecks are coming in, and you're concerned that that money is going out. And so you're very careful with who you trust to manage that money for you. You don't just give it away to anybody and say, hey, go take this down to, to Remington Park and bet it on the ponies. We'll see what happens. No, you're very careful, and you, you find someone that has your best interest at heart, who has an understanding of the stock market or whatever, and you in, invest with them. If, if your money is precious to you, you, you're careful in how you manage it. Uh, for others of you, it's, it's neither of those things. It's your car. You love your car, but who do you trust to work on your car? If you love your car, you're only going to entrust somebody to work on that who is has skill and who has been trained. You're not just going to give it to somebody who stayed in a Holiday Inn Express last night and who watched a YouTube video. That's not good enough for you. If your car is precious to you, you're going to be careful how you, who you trust it to. Now, I, I say those things, and those are all examples that are somewhat lighthearted um, and somewhat ridiculous in the way that I, I pose them, but the reality is we're very careful on things that are precious to us. Friends, there is nothing more precious to us than our soul. The very core of who we are. And what we have in Scripture is a call for us to trust our soul to God. And how we think about God is directly connected to whether or not we will do that. Because who wants to entrust their soul to an untrustworthy God? It would be foolish for us to do so. But if God is in fact trustworthy, then we should willingly trust our lives to him to provide not just for our today, but to, to, to provide for our tomorrow as well. And what we see in, in Romans chapter 11 in the first 10 verses is a defense of the trustworthiness of God as it pertains to his relationship with his people Israel. And so as we look at that, we can find some principles that will help us to understand that God is trustworthy even to us today. So I'm going to read these verses for us, Romans 11 verses 1 through 10, and then we'll back up and see three things about God uh, that will encourage us to trust him today. Romans 11, beginning in verse 1, the apostle Paul writes and says this. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, Elijah said. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, 
and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now these 10 verses tell us several things about the character of God and encourage us to trust him. The first thing we see from these verses is found in verses one through four, and that is that God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. We see this here in these first four verses. Now, Paul gets us into that conversation by asking a question about God's people Israel. He says in verse one, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, this question comes because God had initiated a very special relationship with Israel, one branch of this family tree. God had initiated a very special relationship with him, and it had gone back thousands of years, even before the time of Paul. God had initiated with this guy named Abraham. And God came to Abraham, and he gave Abraham three promises. He said to him, I will give you land, and I will give you seed, I will give you descendants, and I will give you blessing. And God didn't just give him that promise, but God actually entered into a covenant with Abraham, and he said, I will make sure that these things happen. And there's this beautiful story in Scripture of how God verified that that was actually going to happen. Uh, God got Abraham in front of him, and he, he took an animal, and he split the animal in half, and then God passed through the animal. And that's one of these really bloody stories in the Bible in the Old Testament that you're like, I have no idea what that's talking about. Well, the, the idea of that, of that incident was that God was making a covenant with Abraham. It was common in the first century when covenants were made that animals were split in two and that the parties that were forming an agreement would walk through that path between those animals. And the implication was this, if I break my covenant with you, may it be done to me as was done to this animal. So that if I'm going to sell Kelly, my, my Subaru, and we come to a, an agreement on that, on that price, and it's going to be his. Rather than going to the title dealership in the first century, we would cut an animal apart, and we would walk down the middle. That if I ever tried to take that Subaru back from you, I would be split in half. Um, now, that's pretty serious stuff. And that's the way covenants were made. But what's interesting is when God makes this covenant with Abraham, when he promises land and seed and blessing, what he does is he does not ask Abraham to walk through. He tells Abraham to stop and God himself passes through. Now, why did he do that? Because God was saying that the promises I'm making to you, Abraham, are good and they're good regardless of what you do. They're good based on my promise. God alone and God himself would make sure that they would come to pass. Now, fast forward through history, and you have the time of the New Testament. And you have Jesus, the Messiah, coming to the earth. 
And when he comes, a majority of the nation of Israel rejected him. A majority of the nation of Israel sent him to the cross and did not recognize him as their Messiah. Either through indifference or through action, they rejected their Messiah. And what happened at that point was that a majority of Israel found themselves on the outside of salvation and not on the inside of salvation. And Paul's been articulating this argument in this case throughout the book of Romans, especially in the last couple of chapters. And the question is, okay, so if majority of Israel is on the outside now and not on the inside, has God rejected them? Is he done with them? Is he through with them? This word reject is, is the, a word that is used if you receive something and you had it, you possess it for a while, but then you throw it away. Has God done that with Israel? Did he have them for a little while and now he's done with them? That's, that's really the, the question that's being asked. Paul answers that question in an emphatic way, the strongest way he can in the language of the New Testament, in the Greek language. He says, by no means, no way. God is absolutely trustworthy. He has not rejected his people. That's the point. That's the response. But how do we know that that's true? In what way is it true that God has not rejected his people? If a majority of Israel had rejected God and seemed on the outside of salvation, how can it be true that God is still faithful, that God is indeed trustworthy to his promises? Well, Paul begins to give some answers, some reasons for that. The first answer he gives is a personal reason. He enlists himself as exhibit A in God's salvation of Israel. Look at what it says there. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul talks about himself here. This is really the argument that Paul's making. To say that God has rejected all of Israel is to miss the obvious. God has saved me, Paul says, and I'm a Jew. As a matter of fact, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, is how he would describe himself in other parts of Scripture. He would say here that he is a descendant of Benjamin, now of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, we hear that, and that doesn't mean much to us, but it meant a lot in that culture. This meant that he wasn't just a general, a part of the nation of Israel, but he was a part of the right family in Israel. He was a part of the insiders, the southern nation, those who maintained their faithfulness farther, those that came back from exile. See, what Paul is, is, is trying to articulate here is that if you want to, to remember God's trustworthiness and his acceptance of at least some portion of the Jewish people, you need to look no further than himself. And sometimes when we, we see this and we hear this, it, it sounds uh, a, little, a little funny to us because we think, well, of course God saved Paul. Of course he saved Paul because Paul is Bible guy. And God saves Bible guys. I mean, Paul's the one who wrote half of our New Testament. Of course God saved him. We're very used to that kind of thinking because we've met Paul on this side of his conversion. But we need to remember that Paul was one of the hardest hearts in all of Israel in the first century. One of the hardest hearts. Paul had rejected Christ as the Messiah. He was known by, by his previous name, Saul, at that point, but he had rejected. He, he had 
gathered up Christians to, to kill them or to persecute them, to wipe the movement of Christianity off the face of the earth. Because Paul was so zealous in his expression of his religion. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He worshiped the law. He pursued, as we've seen in the previous parts of chapters 9 and 10, he pursued a righteousness apart from God. He pursued a righteousness in his own strength and power. That was, that was Saul before. He was one of the hardest hearts, and yet God had revealed himself to Paul in an, an emphatic way, and Paul sees Jesus in the clouds, and he converts to Christianity, and his life is radically changed. And so when the question is asked, is God trustworthy? Is he faithful to his promises to Israel? Paul would say, he's faithful at least to me as a representative of the nation of Israel. Now, when we, when we hear that, we think, really? You're hanging your whole argument on yourself? God made promises to a nation and you're a guy? I mean, that, that, seems, that seems strange, Right? But I think this is why Paul mentions that. See, if if God was faithful to his promises and got the message to someone as hard-hearted as Paul, how much more so can God do the same thing for the rest of his people at some point in the future? Make no mistake, friends, there will be a day, and we'll see this as we move through the book of Romans and the rest of chapter 11, where there will be a mass conversion of people from a Jewish background. And it will happen not because they just got smarter. It'll happen as it did for Paul where God opened the eyes of their heart. They saw Jesus for who he is. They find out that he's trustworthy and he's kept his promises to the end. See, God is trustworthy even to the hardest of hearts like Paul. But he goes on and didn't just give his personal example. He, he goes on and, and then talks about a historical example, about how God has been faithful throughout time. He's been faithful to always preserve at least a, a remnant, a, a subset of Jewish people who believed him. And the example he uses from the second half of verse 2 through, chapter, or through verse 4 is an example from Elijah's day. Now, the prophet Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who lived in one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. He lived in a time when God's people were worshiping idols and not worshiping God. It was a dark time. It was a difficult time. But even in the midst of that difficult time, God preserved a remnant. And we're reminded here of how God reminded Elijah of that because Elijah is convinced that he's the only one, and so he runs away into the wilderness, and he's ready to just die because he feels like he's alone in his profession of faith. And he, he basically asks this question that we see here. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. God's response to him is this, I've kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The idea is that God was faithful historically to always preserve a remnant of his people. God is trustworthy to his promises. That was true of Paul. It was true in Elijah's day. And you know what? It was true even in Paul's day of people beyond himself. You know, the first converts were from a Jewish background. 
Many of them. Uh, Acts 21.20 tells us that there was over, uh, you know, a thousand Jewish converts. There were, there were thousands of them. Five thousand at Pentecost come to faith in Christ. Many of those um, from a Jewish background. You see, God was, was faithful always to preserve a remnant of his people. God is trustworthy, even though many Jews have rejected him. The point is that God is trustworthy. Now, I, I want to just reflect for a moment about uh, us in this passage. Because as we sit here today, and even as, as we put up on the screen, God is trustworthy. And as you're thinking through that statement, there are some of you who are doubting that that's true right now. You're doubting, is God really trustworthy? Because he doesn't feel trustworthy to me. You might be seeing a promise that God has given, a promise like we saw in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you see that, that statement, but you go, is God really trustworthy to make that true for me? God may be able to apply that to somebody else, but God certainly can't apply that to me, not after what I have done not with the life that I've been living, not because of the life that I'm engaged and involved in right now. It's hard to embrace at times the reality of God's promises. We feel like it can't happen because of who we are, but we need to only to remember the Apostle Paul and remember that God can work in the hardest of hearts. He's trustworthy even there. And, and some of us too are here and we're thinking, you know, we saw in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we think, well, that's a nice sentiment, that's a nice thought, but it cannot be true for me, not with what I'm going through, not with what I'm experiencing. Uh, the, the divorce, the death, the disease, the whatever is going on, the financial collapse, the relational frustration, the situation with your kids, the situation in, 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 uh, in, in your school or among your friends, those things God can't use. God may be able to make good on that promise with some, but he can't make good on his, that promise with all. I don't know that God is trustworthy to work all things together for the good. Some of you here are feeling that right now. But we need to remember that God was able to keep his remnant even in the toughest of times, and God is able to keep his promises to us even in the toughest of times. God can and does work together for the good, all things, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Friends, we gather here today and we remember that God is trustworthy. But the second thing that we see that we need to remember is not just that God is trustworthy, but also that God is gracious. God is gracious. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. After talking about this, these examples historically and personally, he says this. He says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant. There are thousands, Paul was saying, of Jewish converts who are the expression of God's faithfulness to his people even in that day. But how did someone get to be a part of that remnant? Well, it happened by God's grace. It happened by his choice. I mean, think about this. Paul grew up in the Jewish faith. He grew up going to the finest Jewish school. He was taught by this man Gamaliel who knew the Old Testament better than Paul did, which was really saying something. 
And no, no, no doubt at some point, at some level, Paul might have been tempted to ask the question, why is it that God saved me on Damascus Road and not Gamaliel? Why is it that I am a part of the remnant and Gamaliel is not? Why did God work with one and not the other? And the answer that is given here is that it was on the basis of his grace. That's another way of saying Paul doesn't know because it certainly wasn't about him. But God just chose to bless him. And friends, if, if you are here today and you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you have that relationship not because you're smarter than anyone else, not because you're more spiritual than anyone else, and not because you're more righteous than anyone else. You have that relationship because God was gracious to you. I can stand up here right now and read these verses and we can talk about it because God has been gracious to me, not because I have an education in biblical studies. It's because of the grace of God, friends, that any of this makes sense. God is gracious to us. And because he's a gracious God, salvation is on the basis of his grace. We have no hope otherwise. Verse 6 continues this thought. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. It's not by us running part of the way and God taking us the rest of the way. It's by God's grace from start to finish. That's what makes it grace. Now, we struggle with understanding what grace is, and we need reminders of it. And so I'm going to tell you a story that maybe will help us remember what God's grace is, and it has to do with an experience I had yesterday. Uh, went to Bartlesville, where I'm from. Uh, this weekend with my, my wife and son, and we, we had a great time uh, in Barlesville for a couple of days, and we were driving back to Norman yesterday morning, and uh, we were leaving Bartlesville, and we were driving down a street that did not exist when we lived in Bartlesville. Okay, so I'm driving down this, this new street, and I thought I knew what the speed limit was. I thought I knew what the speed limit was. I was going 42 miles an hour in what I thought was a 40-mile-an-hour zone. Now, I look in my rearview mirror, and I see a police car pull out. And, and I, I begin to think, I wonder who he got. And he pulls up behind the car behind me, and I'm thinking, that poor guy. And he pulls around him. And then I think, I better get out of the way so that he can get where he needs to go. And so I pull over, but he stops and gets out and comes up to my car. And I give him my paperwork, and he says, Mr. Robinson, do you know why I stopped you? And I said, honestly, sir, I don't. <laughs> he said, you were going 42 in, in a 30. And I'm like, oh, man, I thought I was only speeding by two miles an hour. <laughs> In fact, I was speeding by 12, and so he goes back to his car, and he comes back a, a couple moments later, and he, he, he gives me just a warning and tells me to, you know, it happens, it's okay, go on down the road. Now, here's what happens in that moment. If you've ever been stopped for a speeding ticket, it is a different experience when your kids are in the car with you. So, Pastor Mark has to redeem this moment, okay? And, and so I, uh, I, I, I asked Josh, Josh, uh, what just happened there? And uh, he said, well, Dad, that was, that, was, that was some grace. 
that you were given there. You know, kind of like God was gracious with us. And uh, I, I, I said, no, Josh, you, you know what it really was? It was mercy. It was mercy because I did not get what I deserved. Even if the speed limit had been 40, I still violated it. What I deserved was a ticket. What he gave me was mercy. But here's the thing, friends. Grace is so much better even than that. Because you know what grace does in that moment? Grace in that moment does not just excuse the speeding. It doesn't just say, do better next time. Grace, in in that moment, what it does is the officer would write the ticket, $125, 12 miles over the speed limit. And then he would reach into his wallet and he would pull it out and he would get the money together and say, and here's the 125 to pay your debt. That's what grace does. If the officer had done that yesterday, I would not have deserved it. It would have been grace. And here's the thing. As we live out our lives, you know, there's the standard that we think is the standard of God. And guess what? It's even higher than that. We think we're speeding by two miles. We're speeding by 12. We have violated the standard of a holy God, and we find ourselves under judgment. And what God does for us is not just the merciful, ah, do better next time, I'll look the other way this time. What God does is he sends Jesus to the cross to pay the full penalty for our sin. Friends, that is grace. That's what God has done for us because he's a gracious God. He reaches out to us and he pays the price so that we might be reconciled to him. When we think about entrusting our soul forever, we ought to have confidence in in who we are trusting our soul to because we're entrusting our soul to a trustworthy and a gracious God. Because of that, there's no place else where our souls can find comfort but in Christ alone. Now, Paul ends this section after talking about the trustworthiness and the graciousness of God. Uh, He ends it in a similar way that he's ended all of these little sections in this series um, by talking about the fact that there are those who have rejected Christ. That even though God is gracious and even though God is trustworthy, there are still those who will reject him. And that rejection is comes from a hardening that happens in our life. And the third thing I want us to see is this. Hardened sin prevents us from seeing God for who he is. Hardened sin keeps us from seeing God for who he is. Why was it that the the Jews of the first century did not recognize Jesus as Messiah? It wasn't because he wasn't near them. It was because they had a hardening. They had calluses on their heart. They had cataracts, spiritual cataracts in their eyes. They had impediments in their ears that prevented them from seeing Jesus for who he was. He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, verse 7. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. They were calloused. Paul then quotes in in verse 8, Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29, he's quoting here from the law and the prophets to show that the whole Old Testament had warned that this was a possibility for God's people to reject him. It says in his quotations, he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. 
Then he continues on in verses 9 and 10, and he quotes David from Psalm 69, a messianic psalm talking about the rejection of the Messiah. And he says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and, and bend their backs forever. It's, it's talking about this, this darkening of mind, the, the callous around their hearts, a hardening. We saw earlier in chapter 9, and the same idea is here, that this hardening comes when people reject God, when there is disbelief, they, they harden their heart. And then God, as an act of judgment, can make that calcified so that there is no hope of repentance apart from God's intervention, just as he did with Paul. See, the people of Israel had rejected because there was a a hardness about their heart. And the issue for us today is that as we we gather here and as we worship and as we have a diverse group of people in this room, we, we have the opportunity to get to know a trustworthy and a gracious God, but yet some would still reject him. And at times, those of us who know Christ, it's, it's possible for some spiritual pride to come up where we think, how could somebody miss it? How could they not see this? Why would they reject a God who so clearly demonstrated himself in history? Why do they not see it the way I see it? I think God gives us these verses to remind us who know Christ to have humility as we relate to those around us. They don't see it because of the callous around their hearts. They don't see it because of the hardening that is about their eyes and is impeding their ears. And the hope that they have is is not for them to get smarter, but for God to intervene. That was Paul's heart for the Israelites. That's our heart for those today who have a a callous about their hearts. We pray that God would would open their eyes. And if you're here today and you have walked into this place not trusting in Christ, but as we have talked, you feel something stirring in your spirit, know that that is because a gracious God is reaching out to you and offering you promises that he can deliver on in eternity. And the way that that relationship begins as he begins to peel away the callous is for you to embrace and trust in Christ from your heart. That happens not by living a better life because if it was by works, it would not be by grace. That happens by receiving this gracious gift that God offers us in Christ. And friends, that's what Jesus is offering you today. I want to pray for us and express that faith in Christ before we end with a closing song where we can sing of our allegiance to Christ by faith. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship today. We thank you for your love for us uh, that that is so deep and so rich. Father, you are trustworthy in your promises. You are gracious to us. And Father, I thank you that Years and years ago, you removed the calluses from my heart. You removed the impediments from my ears. You removed the cataracts from my eyes so that I could see and understand what you were offering me in Christ. It's not because I figured it out. It's because you were gracious to me. And Father, in this room right now, I I believe there are probably people who in a similar way have walked in here with a callus that you are peeling back. And Father, I pray that you're who you are, the God of grace, who is trustworthy, that, that, 
that you would be the one that they would see and you would be the one that they would trust their soul to for eternity. And they would do so right now by faith. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to worship you today, our great God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to stand as we end our service, and we're going to sing out a beautiful hymn, an old hymn from the 1700s that speaks of the propensity of humans to wander, but the graciousness of God to save. And I, I think it's, it's so interesting to think about the history of this because 300 years, a lot's changed in the world, right? But the core of, of our sinfulness has not. Therefore, the truth that we're singing still applies. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love. But he can take our hearts and seal them and take us to his courts above. So let's sing praise to him now.